Shane. Yeah, so it is, it's, a, it's a privilege to be here and uh, to get to teach to you guys uh, from God's Word. You know, the, the, it, is, it is like Halloween season, so that, that got me reminiscing about uh, Halloween when I was a kid. And I remember this one year, it's like, I may be like third, fourth grade, and my mom's like, what do you want to be for Halloween this year? And I like, so I'll have to think about that. Like, so I was really into superheroes. So like, I think my mom is figuring, okay, is it going to be Batman this year, Superman this year, Spider-Man? But I, I, I thought about it. And it's like, you know, none of those superheroes really capture what I'm into. So I think I need to make up my own, right? Uh, so I, I mom, I got it. I, I know what I want to be. What? Uh, I want to be a superhero called Money Man. Seriously, like a big dollar sign on the front because I was like third, fourth grade obsessed with money, right? I was really into it. And, and it's one of those things like there's stuff that's kind of in the culture all the time, but sometimes kids can like, there's no filter, right? So they kind of make it like blatant and obvious, right? Now, how did I get there? Right, because the interesting thing is, that, like, this wasn't just like Halloween, and then I kind of moved on. Right, this was like a recurring thing for me for like years. Like, I can remember, like, as a teenager, like middle school, early high school, like one of our teachers having us like go around the room and say, "What do you think you're going to do for your job after you graduate?" And I said, "I'm going to be an investment banker." Why? Well, I had seen a table showing what the starting salaries for investment bankers were. It's like, what else would there be to do than that? Right. Um, so how did I get there? Like somehow the love of money in a very kind of literal way had captured my heart such that money was actually my hero, right? Now, I didn't get there because some, like my parents would say, okay, Alex, it's, you know what time it is. I know mom, dad, and they put the pile of money in front of me and had me like bow down and worship it a few times. No, and in, in fact, I'll talk about this more. That wasn't actually even the pattern of the home I grew up in. But there was something about the world in which I lived that already by elementary school had nurtured a love of money in me. One contributor, I've thought about this, I think one of the contributors was probably the thousands and thousands and thousands of television commercials I had already watched by fourth grade. Right? You know, so like, I was a morning kid, so like, I was up watching the farm reports, waiting for cartoons to start at 7 a.m., right? So I was getting bonus commercials, right, even before, you know, the cartoons with superheroes started. Um, I'm watching it after school, right? And all of those commercials, right, have subtle messages, which basically is, you'll lead a fun, happy life if you have this. And I was smart enough to figure out you had to have money to buy that, right? I was just figuring out the cues that my culture was using to shape me all the time, right? So, so here's what I want us to try to talk about a little bit today. We're going to be learning from John some warnings about the love of the world, right? And what the love of the world looks like. And, but, but where I want us to start is realizing how did I get there? Well, the simple answer is, you know, Ted Tripp's right. I'm, I was a sinful kid, right? I, I had a sinful nature from the time that I was born. But it's also the case that, case that we as sinful people have created a sinful world that actually nurtures and amplifies the sin that is already in us and actually makes it easier for us to rationalize and justify that same sin. 
So what I want to do as we look at 1 John is, is uh, talk about that. So we're going to be starting in 1 John chapter 2, uh, verse 15. Uh, while you guys are, are, are turning there, uh, let me kind of remind you of where we are in 1 John, right? So 1 John starts off with just a reminder of the gospel, right? So a couple of weeks ago, as Matt was introducing it, we see just the basics of the gospel that all of us are sinners. In fact, if we say that we don't have sin, we're lying. But that the hope of the gospel is that for sinners, there is grace for those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then last week, uh, Troy was explaining that because that's the foundation of John, it's a mistake to read John as giving us a whole bunch of extra hoops we have to pass in order to prove that we're a Christian, right? We're Christians if our faith is in Jesus, but one of the things that should characterize us as Christians is obedience to the one command, love others as I have loved you, right? That was the great commandment uh, that Jesus had given and that John is reminding them of again. And then, you know, Troy was lazy last week and didn't even bother to finish his passage, right? So he, he kicked that down the road to me, right? So there's this bit in the middle of chapter two where Paul was writing to children and to fathers and uh, to the young men. Troy read it, uh, but here, here's the main idea. I think Paul, John is wanting to remind them of what God has already been doing in them and through them, right? He's wanting them to be reminded uh, you know, if they are children, that their sins are forgiven, right? This is the basic gospel truth, that our sins are forgiven, that those who have been walking with God for a long time, that they really know him now, right? That they've, they've grown in their knowledge. He's wanting to encourage the young men that God is using them in this war against the kingdom of Satan, and God is giving them victory, right? So I, this, is, this is kind of the backdrop right, is he's just been talking about a war, right, a battle that's been going on between uh, his church and Satan at work in the world. And that's the context for what he's going to say. We're going to be looking uh, at chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. We're going to have more to talk about, but I want to start with this first paragraph, right? He says, look, if you love the world or the things of this world, then you're not living in the love of the Father, right? You can't have both at the same time. There's always going to be something that is your highest love. And this is actually a foundational thing. In fact, there was a a book I was reading this summer by uh, author James K.A. Smith uh, titled, You Are What You Love, right? In other words, in some ways, the, the, the deepest thing about you is the thing that has captured your love, your desires, your affections. And it's actually a really interesting and somewhat scary question to ask, what is it really that I love the most? In fact, he he tells the story about, I can't remember if it was a movie or a play, but right, the idea is there's these people who are led along this long path and they finally end up at a door. And on the other side of the door, they're going to get whatever it is 
they love the most, desire the most. But it's what they actually desire the most, not what they say they desire the most, right? And those can be two things. And actually, for some of us, it would be terrifying to think about what's actually on the other side of that door. Does that make sense? Like, what if, you know, I I, I say Jesus is the thing I love the most, but I open the door and it's just a bunch of people like saying, Alex, you're great for hour after hour after hour. Because what I really love the most is praise from other people, right? So, so what we love is crucial, and, and John is wanting to warn us against the love of the world. Now, what does he mean by the world, right? In, in, in this part of 1 John, what he means by the world is the literal planet Earth that we live on in its rebellion against God, Right? One of the things, and this is, a, this is a misconception we sometimes have, we sometimes think, like, the world is neutral, and so I have to decide from this neutral planet I live on whether I'm going to, say, follow the way of God or I'm going to follow the way of Satan, right? And there's this kind of choice. That's actually the wrong way of thinking about the world, because one of the things John says in First uh, John chapter 5, he says, I think it's verse 19, the whole world, the earth— is under the control of the evil one right now. Right? In other words, back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God had given us authority and dominion over the world, and it's like we gave that authority to Satan when we chose to follow him. And so he's been reigning, in a sense, on the earth. That's part of the reason why this world is such a messed up place, is because it is under his authority. And so the church is like, the beginning of God's invasion force as he is in the process of trying to reclaim his planet. And one day when the new heavens and the new earth are here, Satan is going to be completely vanquished and this whole world is once again going to be the kingdom of God. But right now, right, there's this war, this tension going on between the two sides. And what John is wanting to warn us about is becoming too at home in the world. Right? Because if, if we allow the world to capture our heart, we're loving a system that has been set up in opposition to the kingdom of God and is actually in conflict with the kingdom's values. Now, that's still kind of vague, so he, he actually makes it a little more specific for us. He says, what I mean by the world is the desires of the flesh. The flesh... It's just our, our sin nature. And, and by the way, that short little video uh, from Paul Tripp, he hit it exactly on the head when he said the root issue is selfishness. Selfishness, right? A view of the world that puts my flesh, my body at the center and tries to orient everything around me, right? That's, that's the core of what John means when he's talking about the desires of the flesh. But then he also says the desires of the eyes, right? Here what he's talking about is the way when we look around, when with our physical eyes we see the world, it captures our imagination. So we just want more and more. Particularly, I think he's talking about sex, right? Uh, where people aren't satisfied with what they can have within God's parameters, right? And so they're wanting more and more and more and more, and they're unsatisfied. He's talking about wealth, right? We're not satisfied with our possessions, right? And so the desire for these things becomes controlling for us, right? It becomes the thing that um, animates us. And then third, he says, the pride 
of life. Here, what he's talking about is our concern for status, right? How do people view us, right? Do they honor us? Are they impressed by us? And sometimes people will go to great lengths to make sure they guard a particular image of themselves to everybody else. Now, here's the question I want you to ask. How much of American culture in 2017 can you explain based on those three desires? Selfishness, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. I'd say about 90%. Right? In other words, if you ask, what are the things that make our culture go? I'll make, put it more provocatively. What powers our economy? Those three things. Right? So here, here's a little test. How many things would Americans buy in the next 12 months if the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life didn't motivate our purchasing decisions at all? I think our economy would like come to a standstill. Right? That's just the way our lives work because of the, the type of culture we're in, right? There's, there's, there's a pattern here. And what Paul, I'm sorry, what John is wanting to warn us about is that if these things are the love that animates us, we are in very dangerous territory, right? He says, the world is passing away along with its desires, right? This is a warning to us that if we allow these things to capture our hearts, we have made a losing bet, Right, because these things aren't ultimately satisfying, right? I was I was thinking about this in just even in marriage, right? Selfishness is in many ways the root issue you've got to overcome. Because at the end of the day, when I'm tired, my wife's tired, and we're trying to figure out who's gonna do the dishes, both of us look back on our day and all the stuff we did seems really impressive, and the other person should just like let us have a little bit of a break now. But we're both doing it because we're both viewing it through eyes of selfishness. But think about it. If selfishness comes to dominate your heart, what is that ultimately going to do to your relationship with your spouse? Can you really have a true friend if selfishness is the thing that ultimately animates your behavior, right? Selfishness promises it'll make you happier, but what it actually does is it corrodes every relationship you've got. What about the the desires of the eyes? What do they do? Our society, our world, our culture is just being overrun by pornography right now. And it has become so mainstream that a lot of things that used to count as pornography are just like normal, like primetime television, right? We're, we're so desensitized to it now. Constantly advertisements are using sex to try to market. But here's a question. Do the millions of men who are now addicted to pornography in our culture finally shut off the computer before bed and say, ah, fully satisfied now? All my needs are fulfilled. No. Right? It, the path of lust isn't actually the path to satisfaction. It's just a path to spiraling further and further down into emptiness. 
What about money? You know, one of, one of the most interesting statistics I came across a number of years ago was they went and asked people, how much money do you make? And then they asked, how much money would you really need to be content? And pretty systematically, the answer was 10% than what I make, more than what I make now. Now think about that. It means you're never satisfied. Because the person who was making 50 thinks, wow, if I was just making 55, man, everything would be comfortable. But once you're making 55, now you've bumped it up, you need 10% more, right? It, it doesn't actually satisfy. What about status, right? This, this, is, this is one I have chased and had to really rethink. This is built into my nature to want to chase this. Um, the more you succeed in impressing people, all you do is you move yourself into a new peer group with a harder group of people to impress. It never ends. And here's the worst part. However good you are at chasing the things of the world, they don't last, right? When you die, you don't actually get to take any of those things with you. The world and its desires are passing away. But, he says, and this is our first bit of hope, he says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. So I want want us to think about that. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. So we've got this word abide, and I want you to notice this because when we get to the next part of our passage, you're going to see this word abide start coming up over and over again, right? Abide, it's a a hard word to translate. It, it, It means something like being at home, dwelling with, right? So, so think about like being at home with God, right? And getting to be at home and enjoy being in God's home forever. That's the future for those who have loved God, right? And, and followed him, right? And we're, we're encouraged to go down that road. But how do we get there? He says, whoever does the will of God abides forever. Now, here's why I want to kind of hit pause for a second. I think this is a crucial, crucial point to think about. Because here's what I've done so far. I've reminded you of something that for most of you, you already knew. Right? None of you are probably shocked to look in your heart and find that there are ways in which you are drawn to love the world recognizing it is actually much easier than changing it. Because changing what you love, that's the really hard part, right? Because it's, it's already worked deep into us. But I think we have a clue, right? That John is wanting us to think about how we act, what we do, our obedience. Because what you do affects what you love, And over time, as you change what you do, it can change what you love. Here's just a a, a simple example uh, from my own life. I have realized that how much I love sports is closely correlated to how much time I give to watching and reading about sports. Does that make sense? Like, if I'm watching it all the time, reading about it all the time, I care about it more, and missing a game becomes a big deal. If I don't follow a sport for two or three years, I don't even think about it, right? Because the habits of watching and doing affect the affections. Now, this is important, right? Because remember, 
The idea is the world around us creates a system that is designed to lead our affections and desires and our love away from the things of God and toward the things of the world. So in other words, trying to change your desires is an uphill battle because the culture you're born into is not trying to help you love God. The culture you're born into is trying actively to get you to love other things. So if, if, if we're going to learn to live differently, we need to have some place we can go where we learn to live a different pattern of life. And that's supposed to be the church. And this is the transition into the second part of what we're going to say here, because it, it may seem at first glance like what I'm about to read has nothing to do with what I've just been talking about. But I think the connection between the two is that John realizes that the church is supposed to be the place where we learn the new habits and patterns of life. And if we're going to learn to not love the world, we have to safeguard the church. And he sees that the church is under threat. So let's pick things up now in verse 18. He says, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that, this is, that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Right? So what, what's he saying here? Right? First, we have this mention of Antichrist. Right? And by the way, he's not in this passage primarily concerned with like the Antichrist coming at the end times. Because he says, in fact, there's many Antichrists, plural. Right? What he's talking about is people who are teachers who are trying to distort the truth about Jesus. They are against Christ, Antichrist, because they are denying the truth of who he is. And he says that this is the last hour. Again, this doesn't actually mean uh, that like Jesus is coming back any moment. He could come back any moment. The last hour refers to the entire time between when Jesus ascended back up into heaven and when Jesus comes back. So 2,000 years ago, John was living in the last hour. Today, we are living in the last hour, right? And in the last hour, he says that there's this conflict going on. And basically what seems to have happened, as, as near as we can piece it together, right, is that there's false teachers who come in. They're distorting the truth about the gospel. And so there's conflict within the church. Likely what happens is elders within the church say, what you are teaching is false doctrine. You cannot teach it here. We will not let you teach it here. And they say, well, then we're leaving. And the elders say, don't let the door hit you on the way out. Right? Because we're not going to let you distort the truth of Jesus here in this place, right? So there was this division where the false teachers and those who went with them went out from the church, right? There was a kind of split, but those who remained in the church were those who would remain true to what the Bible says about Jesus. So let's pick it up again. He says, and by the way, remember, every time you see the word you, it's plural. It's like in, I'm from the Ozarks, like substitute your own y'all, right? Every time I say you, right? Because he's talking to the church. He says, but you have been anointed by the Holy One 
and you all have knowledge. And I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing you received from him who abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it is taught you, abide in him. Right, so there, there's a couple things. One, John is wanting to clarify what the specific issue was, right? He says specifically, these are people who are denying that Jesus really is the Christ, that he really is the Son of God, the Savior of the world. That's what this conflict was about. But he's also reassuring them. He's saying you have an anointing. The Holy Spirit has actually confirmed in you the truth of what we are saying about Jesus, right? You know, not just from our words, but from the testimony of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus really is the Savior of the world and the Son of God. And so given that, his command is all about abiding, right? Did you see that? He says, If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. Right? At the very end, he says, you know, just as you've been taught, abide in him. Right? In fact, the Father will even abide in you. So there's all all kinds of abiding going on in here. Right? This is one of John's favorite words. And here's, here's, I think, a way for us to think about it. Why do false teachers create such a threat to the church? Well, for a couple reasons. One is they want us to feel more at home in the world. They want us to feel more at home in the world, right? Uh, Abiding is about where you're at home. And we see that the general pattern in the New Testament is that very often what false teachers are doing is they're distorting what the Bible says about Jesus in part in order to also water down what the Bible has to say about how to live life. In other words, if you want someone to help you rationalize your sin, a false teacher is just what you're looking for because that's what they do. Right? So instead of the church doing what it's supposed to do, you have these false teachers who are distorting the scriptures to help us rationalize being at home in the world. But secondly, they're also going after the very truth that is the basis for our salvation. In other words, how do you have a right relationship with God? Well, it's by faith. But if they can distort the basics of the gospel— then our faith isn't actually in Jesus as our Savior anymore, and they've cut the link that is the basis for us relating to God. But there's a third thing they do, which is they are actually undercutting 
the basis of our unity as a church, right? Because Jesus himself and our common confession about Jesus is the thing that unites us together. So here, here, here's an example. Uh, you guys, you know, you had Troy here last week. Uh, you may have picked up, Troy doesn't have a lot of filter, right? Like whatever Troy thinks, Troy says. And I remember this is probably 15 years ago, a long time ago, Troy and I were talking and uh, he just stops and says, you know, Alex, if it weren't for Jesus, there is no way you and I would ever have been friends. And I just thought, you know, like, no, Troy, you're, you are absolutely right. Because, like, in high school, people like you stuffed nerds like me in lockers. Seriously, right? Like, Troy likes running after wild animals with his bare hands. I like reading books written by people who've been dead for like 200 years, right? Troy and I have absolutely nothing in common except we both love Jesus. And we both think that Jesus is the Son of God and the Savior of the world. And he has gifts I don't have and I have gifts he doesn't have. And we, you know, for 17 years now have gotten to enjoy watching each other use our different gifts for the same cause, But the unity of the church is torn apart if we don't have that common confession anymore. Do you see that? So a false teacher is attacking the unity on which the church is based. So a false teacher is going to compromise the church from being what the church is supposed to be. So that's why Paul is giving such a stern warning to guard the truth of God's word and to guard the gospel. Because if we do this, The church then becomes the place where we start learning habits of the kingdom that cultivate the love of God instead of cultivating the love of the world, right? The church is supposed to be a counterculture where we learn a new pattern of life that's different than the pattern of life in the world that orients us toward the things of the kingdom. Um, It was really fun having Shane up here to, to introduce me. You know, and it got me thinking about uh, when he and a whole bunch of other young married couples were in our living room four years ago. And one of the things I remember uh, Anastasia and I talking about from that particular year um, was I don't think, I, I know, I don't, I have never led a connection group where I looked around the room and I saw more guys who I thought were just going to be powerful leaders in the church. So it's exciting for me to get to see Shane, one of those guys. I'm telling you, the whole group was like packed with these guys, right? And you realize like the potential they have for expanding the work of the kingdom wherever they end up next. Very few of them are still in Ames, right? They, you know, this is the way it works. They all scatter. But what Anastasia and I tried to do in our living room, a lot of it could be summed up in the following way the default for them is going to be to base their pattern of life as a married couple on what they see around them, like the way marriages normally work in our culture. And they're going to establish a pattern for their home that is going to be a different kind of pattern than what you would get if it was centered around the kingdom of God. Right, So what we did for a year with Shane and Sam and a bunch of other young couples is what we tried to do is try to help them think, what would it look like 
if you really had a habit of looking for ways to serve your spouse instead of be served by your spouse? What if that actually became the normal pattern of how you lived? What if when there was conflict, you were quick to say, I'm sorry, I wronged you, will you forgive me? Right? And what if you were quick to grant forgiveness when the other person asked? What if the church isn't just something you do as a family for a couple of hours on Sunday, but the larger family of God is actually toward the center of your marriage and your family and your whole life, right? What if you think about your money and how you spend your money, not the way the world wants you to think about your money, but the way the kingdom of God would lead you to think about your money, right? And, and what we're trying to do is just help them as young couples start learning new patterns, because all of us start with a pattern from somewhere. You know, I, I, I was thinking about this. You know, when my wife and I are at her parents' house, she feels really at home. And she feels really at home with her parents because she had a whole lifetime growing up with them, learning their habits, learning their patterns. And a lot of the way she is, it's because it's things she got from them her interests, her way of doing things, right? A lot of those things came from them, right? And so when she's with them, it just fits, right? There, there, there's a kind of fit. Now, she had the blessing of growing up with godly, Christ-centered parents. And a lot of the patterns and habits they instilled in her were kingdom-centered patterns. But that's actually the exception now. That's the exception now. Most of us, didn't grow up with those kinds of ma- patterns and those kinds of models, right? We, we come from family histories of all kinds of brokenness and dysfunction, but the church should be the place where we learn those new patterns, right? We're, we're, we start living life in a different way And that different pattern of life helps cultivate the love of God instead of cultivating the love of the world. You know, I, 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 when I've thought back about my money man costume and my, you know, childhood fixation with money, one of the things that I'm actually really grateful for is that at the end of the day, the love of money didn't win. And I've thought about why didn't it. And I think it's because Growing up with my parents, the life choices they made made it actually pretty clear to me as I got older and I could kind of think about it more that the love of God and his church was at the center of our family's life and the pursuit of money wasn't. And so eventually as an older teenager, I I started thinking about this and it really hit me I actually would like the kind of life they have and the love of money isn't going to get that kind of a life. Our families and our churches are supposed to be the place where we are nurturing in each other love for God and love for other people instead of love for the things of the world. 
And that is why it is so important that we not compromise on the message of the gospel about who Jesus is and his power to save, because it is in his power that transformation happens. And it is in his name that as a church, you guys can be unified to help each other develop those new patterns of life. You pray with me? Father, we are surrounded by habits and patterns of the world that if we just go along with the flow of our culture, will capture our hearts. And I pray that this church in Boone, Iowa would be a place where the love of God orients lives, orients families, and where we cultivate the love of you and the love of every person made in your image. Guard this church in the truth. Let them never compromise the authority of your word or the deity of Jesus Christ and look to him as our hope and our salvation. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.